Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans, and specifically you, horror fans? Yeah, welcome everybody to, uh, I mean, the the most wonderful time of year, I'd say. How do you feel, Tay? This is my favorite time of year, for sure. We are just at the beginning of October, and I'm already so into the horror movies, um, and we're starting off with a banger. So I want to kind of put us in the right context for talking about today's movie. Mm -hmm. Imagine, Tim, being at the end of an endless slog of 1980s slasher reboots and sequels. Mm -hmm. So far in the calendar year, we've had very few hopes of a promising future in horror films. We've had From Dusk Till Dawn, and Mm. we've had the 90s classic the craft but uh, we've yet well. and it's it's december and the yeah. year is all but over and we get gifted from the heavens with west craven's 1996 masterpiece scream yeah i mean this would be such a breath of fresh air i feel like we're 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 kind of due for that right now i'd say in terms of our mainstream tent poles and things like that, which isn't necessarily where you ever see a ton of innovation. But I think horror is so often where you do find innovation. But yeah, I mean, you made a list of the other movies that came out this year. Um, and it really does just seem like they're they're in one of the worst slumps of the horror movie genre. Um, it was ripe for innovation that it hadn't seen really since, you know, Halloween, things like that, which were, you know, t- almost two decades prior. Yeah, the genre scene ripe for this kind of turn. We're entering the 90s where a whole new generation is experiencing like the tech, a technological boom. There is a lot more focus on pop culture. Um, there's a lot more awareness of pop culture and therefore the idea of what horror movies stand for. And it really did seem to take this awareness to understand what it takes to get to the next step. Wes Craven just seemed to be the guy with his finger on the pulse. Uh, who understood what this generation of aimless horror fans needed. Yeah, they needed they needed a breath of fresh air. They needed some direction. And they needed, I think he very wisely saw in Kevin Williamson's script um, an understanding that it would validate people who were obsessed with horror movies and also felt underserved by modern horror movies, right? Because even in this movie, you have them watching Halloween. They're not watching something from 1990. There's nothing, there is not like a new classic for them. And this sort of reset it. Yeah, I feel like this was a generation just dulled to a, to a point where they needed something to really shift up the genre. And mm-hmm. Scream really did offer that. It reflected an entirely new generation's perspective on a genre that had been kind of languishing in the sequel universe Mm -hmm. Uh, the slasher films even from the beginning only have so much they can do with their formulas Mm -hmm. and you really needed a script like this to see past the limitations that the genre is offering and see what you can open up in the 90s Um, I'm just gonna put this out there but cell phones seem to have played a big role in what makes this movie scary and I don't know novel and I don't I think it was such a small period of time where that was able to be a plot device because past 
1997-98, then cell phones become almost too saturated to use mm-hmm. as a plot device. So there's also, there's all this 90s context kind of amalgamating to make this movie what it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's cell phones. There's a scene where Sydney uh, uses a, a computer to message 911. Uh, That's right. Video That's stores. Right. There's a lot of hallmarks of just sort of the, the edge of these technologies and things like that. Ever before we get too clinical, I think we started out very analytical of this movie, and I don't want to undercut uh, how amazing this movie is, like how how absolutely watchable it is. It is so much fun every single time. Like we're we're excited to talk about this movie not just because it's important to the genre, because it sort of reignited it, and likely led to a number of the things that you take as commonplace, like meta narratives and things like that. This was the beginning Very of a true. new era. And all of that is true. It has this great legacy, and there's a lot of the technique and the themes that we'll dig into. But I don't want to brush past that this movie is tons of fun to watch. It's yeah. eminently it's- watchable. It doesn't get old if you're watching it every October. Um, and it seemed like a no-brainer for Tay and I, like we did Carpenter last year. Uh, and, I mean, I'm looking forward to watching some Carpenter this year, this October. But... The scream is um, it, it's evergreen. I think it's always good. Yeah, especially for a movie so satiated in nineteen nineties, like kind of culture nostalgia almost at mm-hmm. this point. It is purely watchable and still resonates quite well. The scares still work. The laughs still work. Even mm-hmm. the pop culture references, though dated, still work. I don't know quite what made this movie sing the way it does throughout it's it's a thoroughly enjoyable experience yeah it's so watchable and you know as as usual we'll do some of our paperwork here if you haven't seen this movie before i would assume it's because you think it's played out like it is you've heard about it too much which is a thing that can definitely happen i'm telling you right now just stop the podcast you know get a get a free month on shutter uh find it i feel like it's also on prime it'll be in the notes Go watch it. You will have fun. You'll enjoy it. I think it's the right level, too, because it's kind of that slasher thriller style. There's there's gore and things like that, but it's not. It's also not like these modern horror movies that are going to push your 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 ability to uh, to control your nausea to its limits. This movie is 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 fun and action filled and things like that. So I, I really there's no one I wouldn't recommend this movie to. So for those of you who haven't seen it or need a refresher, it's nice and simple. It's uh, about as basic as it can get. A mass killer stalks high school students in this meta and modern horror classic starring Nev Campbell and directed by Wes Craven. Scream was released December 20th, 1996. It is available to stream on Shudder, maybe somewhere else. But as Tay and I told you in the last podcast, grab a month's worth of Shudder. It'll cost you six or seven bucks. um, And uh, you will not run out of horror movies to watch uh, over the course of the month. Yeah, I I was on there the other day watching some other stuff. It's such a great streaming service. It serves short films, uh, independent films really well. So mm-hmm. I am always going to support that channel, whether I'm watching stuff every month on there or not. Usually I am, but I just love supporting that channel. Yeah, and uh, so the tagline for Scream is, uh, I mean, one of the many, but I'd say I looked at some posters. This is what I saw the most, sometimes with a second tagline with it, which made it a little wordy. But I like it. It's uh, someone's taken their love of scary movies one step too far. And I think it touches on 
there's a little bit something like locked in time here where it's uh, to to be to get a little bit heavier for a moment. This is pre Columbine shooting and pre, you know, I think the the um, the sort of modern discourse of media inciting behavior in the people who who consume it definitely wasn't the first time there's there's always worries about video games about horror movies making people violent but i think there's a modern discourse that began with whether or not the people involved in the columbine massacre were really into video games or you know if people after watching the matrix got obsessed with guns stuff like that and i think this exists right before that in this little pocket where they were able to talk about this idea that um you know like uh uh, what what is Billy Loomis's line where he says? Teaching one too many movies. No, Sid, don't you blame the movies? Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that I don't think you could do in a movie like this anymore. I think they they you can't really, really say that. Yeah, yeah, they really locked into this one time where it was okay to again as I mentioned earlier, this movie kind of validates horror fans and their extensive knowledge in a way that. You know, even like, frankly, the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, kind of capitalizes on the type of fan who knows all the references that they're dropping. And not even that too many of them are, are particularly subtle in this. Like you actually have Wes Craven dressed up as Freddy Krueger as the janitor at yeah. one point. They're that having fun so with far it. from subtle. And that's yeah. <laughs> what I guess that's what creates the tone of Scream, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it? Yeah, it is this balance between comedy and horror. Um, and just like it. A, an immense list of references. Tay, you put a bunch in there, but there are other ones that I saw. I was taking notes as I was watching this last week. You got Halloween, When a Stranger Calls, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, All the Right Moves, I Spit on Your Garage, um, uh, being I Spit on Your Grave, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Silence of the Lambs, Psycho, Carrie, Trading Places, Candyman, Evil Dead, Hellraiser, Basic Instinct, and Exorcist. I think that's it, but I probably missed one of them. No, there, there's, it's so stacked. There's no way we could have got them all with no. a couple watches. But, uh, um, yeah, so I think I think this, it, it feels, it's a, that great thing where when you look back on it or you've already seen it demonstrated, it's something that feels obvious. But at the time, uh, there's a great oral history of Scream that I'll link in the comments, or uh, I'll link in the show notes. Um, and it's a great sort of walkthrough of, so Kevin Williamson, who wrote this script, um, on the production side, production houses really liked it. I think they understood the marketability of this, that yeah. it's horror, it's comedy, it, it validates horror fans and makes them feel uh, like they're smart when they understand the references. You can have a nice big teen cast. It, it feels like a, like a good bet. Production houses really liked it, and they were bidding it up and up and up to the point that some of them started dropping out, and Williamson was worried that the script read too well to even be bought because a bidding war would just kind of ruin its value. But he had a hard time getting a director for it. It, it went to Wes Craven, and he passed on it at first, right? Which also feels odd, given, given some of his previous work. He really liked doing meta stuff in the seventh Nightmare installment that he did. Um, Was that Craven, though? Because Craven kind of... I don't think he did any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies past number three. But, but New Nightmare, right? Isn't that that's oh, seventh yes, in the, yes. in the, I guess, in the series, sorry. right? I guess that is the seventh one, yes. Yeah. New Nightmare is very much on the same track as this movie to to sort of uh, retread my own ground looking back this kind of thing feels obvious because it works so well but like the directors who who were who considered this movie a lot of the guys at a at a dimension um including robert rodriguez and even quentin tarantino apparently 
um, none of them really saw it as working and they, they, they weren't interested in it. And uh, it took a little bit more uh, convincing to get Craven on board. What uh, a different world it would have been. Sign on. <laughs> what a different world it would have been for either of those two directors to take it. Yeah, I mean, Rodriguez feels like it, it definitely could have happened. Um, he did do Dust Till Dawn this same year, yeah, so it probably it could have been one or the other for him. And for Tarantino, I think this is almost too much content for Tarantino to deal with in his way. Yeah, like the the tone would have been so different. Yeah. I I, have no, I really have no idea what that would have been about because I can, you can kind of see like the pop culture awareness in it would definitely yeah. be favored by by Tarantino, but the rest of it, I just I can't I can't even imagine what that movie would be like. I feel like all the references would have had to have been more obscured than the the more classic slasher films that we get references to. That's true. But, you know, it is, it's these references and it's the characters in the film. Their awareness of horror movie tropes is what makes this film so unique and interesting. Um, I also think that their knowledge of what should happen in a horror movie is what leads to a lot of their demise. Um, their risk in the film is all kind of predicated upon their faith in horror conventions working. And the cool thing about Scream is that it is intentionally then showing you the conventions, sometimes following them, and then sometimes breaking them and mm -hmm. turning them back at you. So really unpredictable for us, the audience, and the characters involved in the film, which I think works because we feel so connected to the characters because we're on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it yeah, there's there's a real intelligence and uh and, and cleverness at play in how this script was written because uh, like prior to this, horror movies are movies that really work because the audience is aware of what's happening, right? Like it's yes. commonly like don't go in there, you know, don't say you'll be right back, don't go investigate a strange noise. People understand these tropes, which heightens the suspense for them when they see people doing it anyway. This you add a you add a third dimension to it because all the people in the movie know those tropes too, right? So you have I mean I I got this quote from Nev Campbell where she said she I went to a test screening and it was surreal because it's such an audience movie, isn't it? People are standing up and screaming at the screen while Jamie Kennedy, um, who plays the video store clerk, uh, what what's his character's name? Tay, help me out. Oh, it's. That, no. I've seen this movie so many times and I don't know what any of the characters' names are other no, than it's Randy. Letters. It's Randy. Randy. So they uh, people are standing up and screaming at the screen while Jamie's screaming at the screen. Everyone is so active and engaged and on the edge of their seats. I'd never experienced that before in any movie. So I think by, you know, making your characters as aware as your audience, just as you said, it allows you to either follow the conventions and, and people ha get that dread feeling where they're like, no, don't go in there. And you know not to go in there. So why are you going in there? Or diverting from them and surprising them. And can we, like, now that we're on the, onto the cast a little bit, mm -hmm. this is such a 90s cast in terms of... Yeah. And you and I are not old enough to know all these 90s characters' significance, but mm -hmm. we know the 90s well enough to know these characters all look like they belong in 90s sitcom shows, not the latest Hollywood blockbuster film. Uh, we have Jamie Kennedy, as already mentioned, Matthew Lillard, uh, Skeet Ulrich, Rose McGowan... Neve Campbell and Drew Barrymore, all teenage heartthrob style mm -hmm. actors who look like they should be in very dramatic teen shows 
Um, they all I look think, like Dawson's Creek. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think like that also really works for kind of creating this teenage universe in the movie with mm-hmm. very little adult interference. Uh, something that Craven's notoriously been good at doing in his movies is kind of showing the futility and uselessness of parents and mm-hmm. authority figures and giving all the credit and the hubris to the teen characters. Yeah, because, I mean, you immediately have, like, Sydney's father has to go on a trip and disappears. Really just cementing in that the being ne- alone in your house thing that we have from the first scene. That's right. Like, the second scene begins with the father leaving. And you're just like, oh, come on, guys, right? And then your only other real adult figures are Gail Weathers, who is biased towards her need for a story. And that was Courtney is- Cox, I guess, trying to do something other than Friends to show that she could do something other than Friends. And she's also pretty young. So mm-hmm. we say she's adult, young, but she's and- young. And then you got David Arquette, who is technically an adult and a police officer and should have authority, but the entire joke is that he has no authority. He has no authority, um, does not look like an adult, and no. does not act like an adult. No. And then, uh, and I mean, other than that, I don't know, you got Henry Winkler, who is a weird principal. There's a line exactly. where he says, like, I love my students. He he touches Nev Campbell's face during her interview. And then he's got that great scene where he's, like, cutting the mask apart and, like, threatening the kids with uh, with those massive shears. I really like Winkler in this. Um, but yeah. I think, yeah, I think you're 100% right that Craven's like, let's make it clear, like, none of the adults are an asset to this. They're not going to keep anybody safe. And that also helps create this wonderful feeling of unease throughout the movie. You don't think any of the characters are safe at any point. Uh, maybe when they're at school, I guess. But uh, once this, once that point in the narrative hits where school is canceled because of all the murders, mm-hmm. it's all free, free game. Well, yeah, they make it clear right from the beginning. Like you can't. It doesn't matter if you're in your house if you have your doors locked. Exactly. And we're not going to touch on our scene just yet, but the horror elements of this movie really work. And I'm not quite sure if this is just Wes Craven being able to direct horror really well because I found a lot of his movies have the same vibe where there is lighter elements, whether it's humor or uh, more intimate character moments, but he's still able to nail the horror. He's still able to make Mm -hmm. me feel scared for the characters at certain points in the narratives of pretty much across his filmography, but even in his less horror-oriented films like People Under the Stairs and Serpent mm-hmm. and the Rainbow. Yeah. There's yeah, just no, something I about mean, what he does. Yeah, there is a there's a style to this movie that I love, um, and it's, you know, it's definitely a combination of Craven's uh, directing, uh, Mark Irwin's cinematography, and uh, Patrick Lussier's uh, film editing that I think... You know, especially uh, to our, you know, our listeners, if you've, if you've uh, really, if if you haven't gotten into older horror, and I, I am, it is unfortunate to even call this older horror because it's not. It's it's definitely modern era, but it's not. You know, we now have this A twenty four era where horror has become incredibly cinematic. It's got a very specific style. You know, shallow focus, um, uh, your more muted colors or more intentional colors. Yeah. Um, and and a, a much more obvious heavy hand on the visual side for better and worse. I love how this movie looks and I love how it's shot. I think I think if you take you take this opening scene or you take any scene and you throw it to someone today and number one, I think it almost certainly becomes a oneer 
And I think that would be such a detriment. I think this movie, I think this, the, the scene we're going to talk about, and I think the movie in, in general is such a credit to understanding how to use a bunch of different shots and make a really compelling sequence. The camera will follow people sometimes, but it would, it would be a loss to have it just become a tracking oneer. Right there are insert shots, there are POV shots, there are shots with this wide angle, you know, uh, this wide enough lens that it has distortion on the left and right side of the yeah. of the frame. All of this is an asset. All of it would be lost if you were like, no, no, no like let's really just like do a oneer and, and get into it. And I I think this is one of the things that sort of made me come to the conclusion that like I think a oneer versus a number of like edited shots together is the difference between watching a person and feeling like the person i think the insert shots and things like that get you more inside the 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 space and the perspective of um you know sydney or uh, or casey or whoever is being stalked whereas if you got a wonder and it's chasing them around i think that's way it just immediately becomes so much more of a third person perspective and right. that that can be valuable in horror where you're again you're watching somebody do something that you know they shouldn't do or that you wouldn't do in that scene. But I think Wes Craven has such a command of when to do the killer's perspective versus when to do the target's perspective or even uh tertiary ones like Gale Weathers, uh Dewey, etc. Yeah, I I really like that aspect of this movie is just the way we do get to see we're not just with Sydney the whole time. In fact, we mm-hmm. don't even start on Sydney. We don't see her until about 13 minutes in the film. And I really like the disorientation that this kind of offers. Or mm-hmm. I guess maybe it feels like we're being let go, like we almost get a sense of reprieve when mm-hmm. we don't have to stick with Sydney for a bit when we get to go chill with Dewey at the police station or Gail Weathers talking to her cameraman. Mm-hmm. We kind of get these moments where we're not as high strung and we feel safe and then towards the end whenever we're with Dewey and Gail we're almost equally in danger as when we're with Sydney and there's just something about how the movie transforms us as it goes and I talk about this all the time how at the beginning we can feel a certain way but the movie is coaching us to then feel less comfortable as the movie goes mm-hmm. and it's really yeah. cool to see a master director control us like that yeah, and I think the changing perspective also kind of obfuscates the who done it nature. Yes. Right? Because you have all these different settings, all these different targets where Ghostface will just appear and you really lose the sense of trying to be like, okay, I have an objective line of facts or things like that. Right? I I I love that like every time I watch this, obviously I know who the killer in parentheses S uh is at the end of this movie, but um, like as you go, you just sort of see little aspects of the different perspectives and like the ways that the nature of of the the identity of the killer sort of provides for these uh, alibis and and sort of uh, you know reasonable shadow of a doubt for different characters who get accused of being the killer. I think it just functions so well every time. Yeah, I think you're you're really onto something there because when we do see, um. Because we're trying to guess who the killers are, or killer is, whenever we see some character who we might question as the killer, it, um, it kind of throws off our scent, right? We don't mm-hmm. under, we don't see how they could possibly be in two places at once, which goes hand in hand with the original 
ending of having the multiple killers, which isn't completely novel to this, but it was not expected. And I don't think it's an easy thing to predict in this film. I also like how it intentionally sets you up with the characters kind of thinking they know who the killer is. At almost every point in the movie, there is a clear uh, idea of who we think the killer is. It starts with being Billy. Mm -hmm. Eventually, though, he gets an alibi and we can't see him as the killer anymore. Um, Target shifts to uh, Sydney's father who has been out of the picture for almost the whole movie. And it kind of creates this idea of like the killer who's lying in wait and we're just waiting for him to show back up. And usually when a movie is painting the villain to be one specific character, especially so blatantly, I don't fall for it. I think Mm. Scream is doing something a little different because it's really giving you not many options. It's like this is clearly, there's way too much evidence against these people at the times that they're being accused and there's no other reason to think anybody else should be suspected and if you do like you just don't have enough evidence so it is a really good way to kind of convey the whodunit side of the film as well yeah and i mean you got that sequence with jamie kennedy in the store where he's just like it could be anybody here's my guess um yeah Yeah. here's here's a reasoning for why it could be you or could be me or could be him um and but also just saying that like I mean, I love how this movie sort of turns out where it's like motive, motive, motive. What's the motive? And in the end, they're like, well, does it really matter? He's like, here's a good motive. It's a it's a good call for uh, Billy Loomis's motive. But then, like, what about um, um, Stu's? Yeah, Stu's motive, right? Is he just insane? He might be. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's hard to tell, but I love that they're kind of like, it. That's does that matter as much? Because we, we're horror fans and we're no horror fans are watching this and they're not as interested in the motive as they are the the method the execution and uh and the results yeah uh, i can't say enough about matthew lillard in this movie so uh i'll I wait i'll wait till I'm the end such a fan yeah man <laughs> uh and because the turn of his character at the end when he's basically like saying that he, it was all peer pressure and media mm-hmm. desensitization that led to him becoming this way it it can be done so carelessly that that kind of performance i don't think the script yeah. is even particularly strong there i think that's all matthew lillard kind of creating this simultaneous sense of apathy and i don't know ridiculousness it, it's so interesting that... to kind of feel empathetic to his character despite the fact he's yeah uh, admitting to his own insanity slash um Drive to kill. Bloodlust. Bloodlust. Yeah, no, I mean that that part really plays for me like um in the Dark Knight where every time the Joker provides his origin story, it's different. Right. That's the feeling I get from Stu, where like he's saying these things and he's like, I don't know, man, like this is I'm saying this right now. It would be different if you asked me in five minutes or if a different person asked me or if I wasn't bleeding out, you know? Uh and just one of my favorite icing on the cake moments is that he gets killed by a television in the end, which mm-hmm. I think is a little on the nose, but I think that goes it fits nicely with the rest of the film being a little on the nose and directly connect like tying up that loose end. Mm-hmm. And him not being the only killer, like if they want to kill him with a TV, that's fine. I think if if it was if that was your climactic moment for like the the entire end of the suspense, um 
it would be worse. But the fact that, you know, you still got Billy, um, who is frankly more more frightening and, and, and seems more threatening, uh, should be fine. This is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back to life for one last scare. <laughs> yeah, that's a great end. But yeah, I know I don't know. Uh anything else you want to say about this or you wanna hop into our scene? Um I think we can get into our scene. Yeah, and we, we should I mean, we gotta admit we're sorry guys. Uh we hope you won't think too poorly of us, but we're breaking our rules again. Of course we're doing the opening scene. We what have other to. scene would we do? Right? There's one it's other just, scene in consideration. Yeah, yeah, there there are a couple others, but like this is one of the greatest horror scenes of all time. It is such a well-paced 13 minutes. It is such a slow build, but it also has rise and fall. Um it it builds tension and and releases slightly and will go back up and things like that. And then I mean to get to get into just like the conceptualization of this scene and who is in it and how they marketed the movie is one one of my favorite things in 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 all of cinematic history. Um, so, Tay, why don't you tell us about the scene? All right. Well, so obviously we're doing the opening scene, so it starts at zero minutes, zero seconds, <laughs> and <laughs> goes till thirteen minutes and eight seconds into the film. So it is a thirteen minute opening scene. Which did that, does that surprise you? This is probably you? the longest scene that we've done right i would guess close to it that's if, not something not. I, I i have in the in the spreadsheet but i can't imagine we've done a longer sequence Did, does that surprise you though that it's 13 minutes oh it doesn't feel like 13 minutes i think i think when i was watching this taking notes and the scene was about to end i was like i think i was thinking like yeah i know seven eight minutes of terror that's about me what i was it's, thinking it's too. about double that you know yeah isn't i just think that that's a crazy stat when i i mm. just i before we started recording today, I had to look up the time again, and I was still, I had to double check myself. I was surprised. Yeah. Um, point being, though, the scene, opening scene is a 13 minute scene that starts with Drew Barrymore at home alone as the high schooler Casey Becker. She's at her family's rural home where she engages in what turns into a horrifying phone call game of cat and mouse with a masked assailant who's waiting outside. And this is not exactly the most original this isn't a purely original idea because i think when a stranger calls does exist Mm -hmm. at this point yeah but what a horrifying concept that is once again brought to light because of the invention and mass production of cell phones that's starting to kind of finally saturate the home market or uh the consumer market i should say um and with that in mind we have a killer outside on a cell phone something that you really couldn't have done even a couple of years prior to this realistically yeah no there'd be no way to explain like how the killer was mobile or close by and things like that like there you'd, you'd have some very heavy-handed insert shot of like a payphone on the street being hung up by like a gloved hand that's right um so yeah it's distinctly it it's cut yeah it's cutting edge modern to uh to the to the year or or you know give or take a year of when this movie was being made um still in the era of uh, beepers here yeah so i mean i think the my favorite aspect of of the many great aspects of the sequence is that so they cast drew barrymore as this character casey casey becker uh she wanted to be sydney obviously who wouldn't want to be sydney great great scream queen one of the best 
Um, she kicks ass. But uh, I think they wisely, you know, through the, the writer, the production, the casting, um, and the director understood that taking someone as famous as Drew Barrymore was at the time and promoting the movie as if she was the star and cutting the trailers and the posters designs, all things around Drew Barrymore. And then your first scene is a 13 minute scene gets right into it, gets right into the horror premise, even though it probably takes half the scene to get to the part where it becomes threatening. And it's no longer like, you know, chatting with a stranger, you know, flirting with a flirting harmlessly over the phone, things like that, talking about what you're doing. Um, it would be, it would be, bombastic in the theater because like it, w- it would open you're going in expecting to see a drew barrymore movie and you know by the end she's she's gutted and hanging by a tree at 13 minutes in I think yeah, if, you, you throw out the entire book you you could see anything i think in today's world you would still assume that she's alive somehow and until yeah. you you i for me at least i'd probably be waiting at least until they got to school the next day and they were talking about how casey becker died Mm-hmm. then that would be the final nail in the coffin. Until that point, I would have just assumed that she's not quite dead yet or something. Mm-hmm. It would have been full denial mode. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I can't imagine with, you know, unfortunately, you know, the state of the box office these days and the lack of confidence production houses have in movies other than their primary tent poles. You just, I don't, I don't think you could see a marketing campaign like this anymore. And it's such a shame. My, my sort of inverse example, and it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it's related is like, again, I just always sort of harp on the idea of what if, what if the trailers for Blade Runner 2049 didn't have Harrison Ford in them? Right. You didn't see him until the movie. And it's kind of the opposite. I understand like that's value for their marketing. It would get some people back who love the original and maybe wouldn't have saw the sequel otherwise if they didn't think Ford was connected. But man, it'd be so special. It'd be, it, it would create value in the theatrical experience and, and for going opening night or opening weekend. That's right. Um, before, and, before spoilers start, start abounding, you know? And this is in an era where spoilers were maybe less prevalent mm-hmm. or at least like not as uh, instantaneous. So I think this like movies that used ad campaigns like this or some like in any kind of similar way um, had a bit of an advantage at this point in time. You can't really do this now because people can find stuff out. People could like now, honestly, you could probably figure out how many days Drew Barrymore was on set, realize she wasn't going to yeah. be in the whole movie. That kind of, like that's the way that our culture works now um in the 90s not so much because uh in kind of like the reverse effect remember uh david fincher's seven which i think came out a year prior to this right did the opposite thing right Mm -hmm. it with they didn't tell you obscuring kevin spacey's name super famous kevin spacey was in it yeah that's true and you just omitted his name from the credits um you see that a bit more than this way of doing things where you kill off your poster character in the first scene um because mm. even psycho which is f- infamous for doing the uh, for killing the main character janet lee halfway through the film it still took yeah. halfway into the movie to do so so um killing your poster girl in the opening scene is once again incredibly novel and it will never be done again i don't think uh, without yeah. being referenced back to scream yeah, and I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that, yeah, this came out December 20th. Um, so the studio <laughs> called that counter-programming. So 
you know, I, I think um, it probably benefited from the people who were going to see it expecting next to nothing. Because if you're going to drop a horror movie in December, no one's going to think it's going to be great. They're just going to see it because they already saw Beavis and Butthead, right? Mm-hmm. Or whatever else was dominating. I know Beavis and Butthead, basically Variety said uh, Scream was going to get steamrolled by uh, by Beavis and Butthead. Surprisingly, it didn't. And it did. Well, it had a very slow, like it took, it basically it grew every weekend. And eventually, I don't know, I don't think I said the budget in box office. Uh, $14 million budget, $173 million box office. That's killer. Second weekend was $30 million, which wow. is wild. That's amazing. Um, so like so that's you get that word about thing, and then apparently movie, like right? after after the first month, apparently the studio was like, oh, okay, we're refunding our our publicity budget, and they really started promoting it. But you could tell like not at I think them telling Craven or Williamson, oh, December twentieth is counter programming. It's a strategy. Is them covering their asses and saying like we have no confidence in this, um, even though again they they fought so hard for the script. Yeah, which I just is a weird I don't part see that me. confidence going through. And apparently, so this scene, the studio, when they were getting the dailies, were like, what is this? This is not, this is not what we expected from the script. And they were, te- they're, they're apparently, again, according to this oral history, they were telling, they're calling Craven a hack and stuff like that, which is, even at this point, unfair. I think he was a very tested and true talent. True, yeah. But they were giving him a hard time. So I guess they had to cut this scene together what, during production just to show the studio, like, no, no, it's good. We know what we're doing. It's funny. It's suspenseful. There's horror. It's got everything. You just need to understand what we're doing, and they weren't getting that from the dailies. And the dailies, for the record, are just like the unedited, this is what we shot today, like the highlights of it. Uh, and if you're seeing this movie in like small bits or little microcosms of character interactions, I don't think, I don't think the studio would be impressed. You're seeing like equivalents of teen sitcom behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, or yeah, uh, kind of unrelated, obscured film re- reference points and um, yeah, movie acknowledgements. So yeah, you're like you need to see it as like a whole. I think to get the tone and pace of the movie in your head, which I think does resonate very quick. It kind of like I said, it really the movie coaches you on how it's going to go from the very beginning, and I as, think as it all starts with this opening scene. It yeah, really it teaches you how to watch it. And it, like by giving you that pace, by showing you that it's going to use a mix of horror score and stings with humorous beats and unpredictable jump scares, uh, it kind of over the course of the first 20 minutes of the movie, you really get that sense of what you're watching. And without that, I don't think that you're on the you're on edge in the same way throughout the rest of the movie. So we credit everything that we've talked about pretty much that we love about this movie back to this opening scene, which is revolutionary in so many ways. Why is it so scary slash good to you, Tim? I think, as I mentioned, it's the the combination of the shots is a big part of it for me. Um, usually when Casey is on the phone, you kind of have this stalker camera. It moves very gracefully, but sort of just tracks her as she walks around the house. Um but they don't insist on holding a one or being like, you know, full De Palma or whatever and, and just doing like, this is the POV of the killer. They're from looking from outside the house, things like that, which can be effective. But I think they made a wise choice in 
having lots of insert shots within within like a minute there's a canted angle right the first time she picks up the phone to canted or a, or a dutch angle yeah it's just sort of like it's a it's it's on a tilt right on the on the left to right axis um and all of that together uh, just a very wisely edited together series of shots that are either tracking her or showing her setting up the popcorn or turning a, a deadbolt or not these insert shots combined with tracking her combined with close-ups get you into the frame of mind of Casey and I think they make you feel trapped and watched and uh, and in danger right and and then it's just it just keeps going it's not in a rush at all you've got a yeah you've got a couple a good, of the that's a great point yeah you got a couple of the light phone conversations then they get more threatening and then you get into the i think the biggest left turn is it's still threatening but he's doing movie trivia i ask a question if you get it right steve lives Please don't do come on it'll be fun Please. it's an easy category movie trivia i'll even give you a warm-up question he touches upon like what is essentially like the pedantic like Frankenstein versus Frankenstein's monster of horror movies, which is that um, Friday the Thirteenth, the killer is not Jason, the killer is Jason's mom. I'm sorry, that's the wrong answer. That's right, right, and which is just like it. It would be such an in joke. I, I'm sure there's there were there were thousands of horror fans who were in the theater, and and you know, if you're going to see this a second or third time, you're yelling the answers at Casey, and uh, and she's and she's not getting them. Right. And I love the slow escalation of the killer's intensity. I would see it as an intentional slip up on the killer's end, but it it's played as unintentional where he says, You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? Yeah. And then, and that's said in a very calm way. And but it immediately, it's not like Casey is is a dim-witted teenager. She did hear that and is mm-hmm. alerted instantly, and yeah. immediately starts walking around the house, locking the doors and looking outside. Mm-hmm. This is officially cued her. And then you hear the escalation in the killer from when he actually threatens her to hang up the phone. Listen, asshole. No, you listen, you little bitch. If you hang up on me again, I'll cut you like a fish. Understand? To where he says the famous line. What do you want? To see what your insides look like. I think it's a genuinely horrifying line that works so well uh, Mm -hmm. because of the escalation through the scene. It's a buildup, and I love that. Yeah, it's so well paced. And I think, you know, another thing that works in its favor, it's an old trick, but, uh, but it's always effective, is that you don't see the killer for a very long time. And uh, so the guy who voices, yeah, the guy who voices the killer, Roger Jackson, um, uh, he's he's done a lot of voice work and things like that. Uh, He said uh, it's like old radio theater. The scariest monsters are the monsters you don't see, but the monsters you make in your mind. So just having a voice to react to makes it larger in their minds. And there is this real pervasive presence of Ghostface. You don't even know his Ghostface at that point. It's just this guy who will not stop calling, and then you realize he's there on site, and then. You know, she's like, well, I've got a boyfriend. It'll be here any second, so your ass better be good. Sure. I swear. He's big and he plays football and he'll kick the shit 
And he's like, he's like, no, no, that won't be an issue either. Here he is. Uh, he's in bad shape. Get these questions right. You didn't. Now he's dead. Um, and then, and you're next, right? And then, like, even the parents come home, and that, like, man, the suspense of that sequence, it's, uh, or that part of the sequence. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, we can go, we can go there now. So the parents is honestly very scary. Like. As far as me being scared in movies go, I remember the first time watching, or the first couple times probably watching this movie, this is the scariest part to me. I think it's an actual scary moment in film history when the parents come home. Like you said, it's excellent cross-editing. It's um, The continuity of action is so fluid. We understand that she has gone out the back door or side door and her parents are coming to the front door. Um, mm -hmm. she's being chased by the killer and when her parents go inside, she just wraps around the corner and her throat's already been kind of cut. Right. Is that what it is? No, I, I think she's being choked out. Right. Right. So I, I think her, her throat's just sort of closed up and sore. So she can't yell to her parents, which is so, it's so palpable. It's so yes. futile. Cause you're like, they're right there. Right. And not even that. I don't think Ghostface could have taken them too, but it's just like, they're so close and then you go to the parents perspective and then when they finally find her it's so it's so tragic it's it's that right? moment that i'm talking about that's actually scary yeah. when the mom picks up the phone to call 911 and her daughter and is still her. on the other yeah. end of the phone casey baby <gasps> yeah. so immediately the mother knows that her daughter is still on the property somewhere because mm -hmm. this is an era of yes cordless phones but your phone couldn't go very far from no. its receiver no, so not that far so that phone is close by and your daughter is you're hearing your daughter die yeah and then you go outside and there she is dead. and that's the kind of stuff where like it goes from comedy to i'd say like a lot of this being like thriller right not necessarily what i would say abject horror and then stuff like that where you have people fully gutted you take the perspective of a parent who can't help their child. You take the perspective of a child who can't call out to their parents. These things that are that are truly terrifying. And as, as we like to say so many times, I think tonal control is an art that is largely being lost. Yeah. Um, as I think different, different silos of cinema today are saying we have to be one thing. And at best, your thing can have a couple different tones, but it has to be your brand, right? Like, and again, I think the one of the most notable examples of that are like superhero movies where, yes, they have comedy and they have t tension, but it's so much you can tell just by looking at it or if you heard 30 seconds of dialogue, you're like, I know exactly what type of movie this is. Well, yeah, it's dulled to the point where it has to, it can yeah. easily fall back to the median genre yeah it's all sanded off and things like that and then you watch something like this and how deft it is the spikes how right? graceful it is from moving one thing to the next um i i just it's it's a it's a true achievement like this is this is something very special that you get to watch and i think it's and half of it is that the work is not on display as i mentioned with like oneers i think a lot of camera work these days is a lot of let me show you how great I am or let me like it's it, it's showy right and I think all of this is in service of creating an experience for the audience 
Um, and some, something and, in- and 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 that means that people's egos taken a back seat, like Drew Barrymore's, who accepted a small role, or like uh, a cinematographer who could say, "I want to go full like Brian De Palma. I want to just be the I want to be Ghostface perspective the whole time." And you're, I'm going to make you ask, like, "Oh, how'd they get the camera to go through these bushes or or go through that window that I thought was a, a pane glass window?" You know, stuff that uh, Fincher does with cameras in this same decade in uh, in Panic Room, yeah. stuff like that. And um, the humility is there. Yeah. And yeah, they know they know that the goal of this is to create an experience for the audience. Like Nev Campbell said, this is an audience movie. I think it's so generous to you as a viewer, which is why you can watch it every year. That's right. For the rest of your life at, at Octo- in October on, on Halloween, and you'll have a good time. It doesn't matter if you know who the killers are. It doesn't matter if you know how soon Drew Barrymore is going to die. It may not be like that first viewing. It's always going to be effective. I, I kept thinking about modern-day horror, specifically, like, just to pull an example that I, I genuinely like, but Ari Aster, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. who's done Hereditary and Midsommar and a handful mm-hmm. of other films, but something you see a lot in his films is the in-camera zoom or mm. like the slow push-in shots that are very yep. deliberate and something you never would see in a Wes Craven movie is a camera movement that's not done fully by hand like steady like, cam not like handheld shit no it's but, not yeah. it's not that it, but it is still it's natural and rugged it's not mm. the yep. unnatural perfection that you see in a lot of contemporary horror where it is diverting your eyes to one specific part of the frame Mm -hmm. this is letting kind of the action play and following the action which creates a lot more unpredictability for the audience and i guess is my point yeah yeah it leaves you a little uncertain because it does feel like you know as casey becker moves through the house you are kind of keeping up with her yeah in those tracking shots which again when when they no longer serve a purpose they cut to an insert. They cut to a close-up. They cut to a shot of, like, the swing on the tree outside. And All these things play together. Uh, and something I learned, actually, just doing research for this podcast, and a little bit of what Wes Craven I didn't know, was that he started as a sound editor in film, um, which is really interesting oh. because I did notice, uh, upon re-watching this opening scene several times, the insert shots have a lot of volume. Like, the the mix is really high on a lot of the insert shots of like the door locking um, and the mm-hmm. Jiffy Pop popcorn, um, which we, I have to talk, touch on that too. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, like there's a, there's a tactility to everything Casey Becker's doing. He's really She's, drawing your attention to uh, it. Picking up and turning and, and, hanging, and hanging up, you know, in quotations, the cordless phone with the button presses. Yeah, the deadbolt turns, even though the sound of like the light switch for the for the back patio mm-hmm. coming on and off. These are all things where I think the sound editing, I think he understands that that's half of how you get in somebody's shoes in a in a movie cuz like what a movie cannot give you is texture, is is the the sensation of touch. And I think sound plays a way bigger role in that um, than visuals, but like a well-done insert shot, well-edited as to where it's put into the rest of the sequence, and some good sound design and editing can make you feel like you're turning that deadbolt, however futile it may be to do so. And I guess another thing I want to touch on in this scene is just how it does set you up for the rest of the movie in the sense, like you mentioned, uh, the next time, or like basically the next scene is Sydney's dad saying he's leaving for the week or whatever. And you're like, no, I just, I just saw yeah. like a, a home alone girl get murdered. What do you do it? Come on guys. 
And then you have a scenario, like a, the other scene we were actually debating on doing was the scene where Sydney first experiences Ghostface uh, and the phone call, the first phone call she gets from him. And mm-hmm. that scene pretty much without this opening scene is nowhere near the level of tension yeah. it, because we know the stakes, uh, which is something I say horror films should always do is show your stakes early especially if you're planning on having tension about your characters dying, show the potential ramifications early in the film so that way your audience knows the stakes and fears for your character's well-being throughout the film. I don't I cannot think of a better example than this other than maybe like It Follows because in It Follows yeah. they don't come back to anything as gory as that ever again in the movie. Mhm. Kind of the same as this though. There's not really anything as gory as Casey Becker's death the rest of the film yeah you could argue I mean, that my but. favorite my favorite death is rose mcgowan's that's kind of the grisliest but it's maybe it's probably not the goriest but yeah. that's the one that i i feel like i can feel the most there is a <laughs> being trapped there is a claustrophobia to it um and i you know the i spit i spit on your garage sequence yeah no please don't kill me mr ghostface i want to be in the sequel <laughs> yeah <laughs> which that's um, like one of my favorite lines in the movie that yeah that's a good one yeah um no I, I mean i mean for the scene otherwise you mentioned we got to touch on it the jiffy pop thing is such a great idea for tracking the scene and like sort of subtly reminding the viewer that you're watching one sequence together every time they go back to the kitchen the jiffy pop is bigger and bigger than the popping stops then you a little bit of smoke then more smoke then filled with smoke then when the parents get there an outright fire on the little Jiffy Pop thing, I think it's it's such a good way to add, like, telemetry to the scene. And just to to add on to that, at the very beginning of all this, the start, the initiation of the Jiffy Pop is uh, the killer on the other end of the phone asking what she's doing, and she's saying she's mm-hmm. making popcorn because she's uh, going to watch a movie. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. And that's how the whole conversation kind of initiates. And Mm -hmm. the meta factor of having the character say that she's rented a movie for the night. She's making some popcorn to watch it at home. There's this sense of uh, like when I, when I say something is meta, I'm or postmodern even, I'm not necessarily giving it that much credit. I I don't like Mm -hmm. to think like this is an, like this is a super compliment of any kind. But to do it creatively and cleverly, to just kind of tease your audience and say, hey, you're, guys, you're at a movie. This is the start of this movie. We're going to make some popcorn. Um, and then, like you said, then the popcorn plays an actual device throughout the scene that we see developing. It's, at, it's an added sense of tension because then, like, when it starts smoking and then when the fire mm-hmm. happens, it distracts the parents for that moment that's needed. There's so many key elements that this device plays but it starts out as kind of a meta comment that alerts the uh, the audience to the fact that we're watching a movie, which isn't always a good thing. But in this case, I think it's very fun. It's mm-hmm. made to be fun. When we say the scene is funny, we're not saying it's laugh out loud funny, but this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the scene, the scene is wonderful. Like, it, it just it fires on all cylinders without showing off. Uh, it's all it's all in service of one thing, and uh, and it's just it's such a wonderful way to start a movie. Like Kevin Williamson, the writer, said, 
I thought one of the greatest movies in this genre is Psycho. The entire first act is Janet Lee, and then she gets killed, and you're like, whoa, where is this movie going? I had no idea, and I wanted that. I wanted that same feeling. And I think that's pretty evident. Yeah. And then, as you note, uh, scene ends on a Sam Raimi-style uh, Evil Dead shot with the Russian camera, which is a, a nice little nod, a nice little thing to put in your arsenal. And like I was saying earlier, it's it's the lack of mechanization in the camera movements. It's mm-hmm. the, the manual nature of that rushing... I don't even know what you call the Sam Raimi shots. It's like basically running the camera at something. Yeah, it, like, it, like Raimi cam yeah, is, is, Raimi is cam. what I know it is, right? It's basically like, you know, when they did Evil Dead, they put it like... They put it like on a wooden platform that had a handle on either side, and like two people would just run it through the woods. Yeah. Um, and but it's a nice little button to the scene, and then as we said, the next scene immediately sets up the same stakes for Sydney uh, in a, in a in a way that every audience member who who watched the opening scene should be able to clock and understand why it's sort of infuriating from the audience perspective. Yeah, I don't have much else to say about the scene. I mean, yeah, I could keep just repeating myself about how great this scene is, but I, I think I think we covered it. Um, and I think it was a worthwhile time to, to break our rule and do an opening scene. Oh, you know what? I did want to say you made a good point here that the killer uh, in the scene is also fallible and uh, right. clumsy. And I did want mm-hmm. to say that adds a lot to the scene, too, because it's not a perfect kill by any means. It's not yeah. a flawless no, kill. No, yeah, like in... In almost every sequence with Ghostface, like he'll get like punched in the face or kicked between the legs, or the door slammed on thrown him. at him. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. beer's thrown at him! Like that would actually yeah. suck. Yeah, yeah, no, and like I think it 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 makes it viable that you're like, oh, this is a person in the town because there's a different horror to something like what do they refer to Michael Myers as? Is it the shape? Yeah, yeah, he's right? the shape in you're the credits. The shade, the shape. Right. And there's something like inhuman about him where like he will never stop. He'll just, you know, you could stab him and he'll sit up and, and keep going. There's a real Terminator sort of vibe. And, 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 you know, in the first Terminator, that being closer to a horror movie anyway itself. I like that this is different. I like that, that Craven took it. Craven and Williamson took it in another direction. I'm like, no, 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 like you can fight back there. But there is something like there's obviously still stakes. But I think they set up the idea that, yeah, like Sidney Prescott can kick some ass later in this movie and it, and it's viable as well he wasn't the terminator up until he fought sydney yeah once again this is a scene that we talked about because it sets up so many other aspects of the movie really really effectively mm-hmm. and that's just another one of them is that we understand that this isn't some unstoppable force coming at them it is it's a human of some kind mm-hmm. and that makes it yeah. all the more terrifying and also i guess believable that our characters stand a chance at the end yeah no it's a it's perfect way to open this movie and i uh i love it so much it's just fantastic i'm glad we got to talk about it yeah one of the best Um, opening scenes ever i would say yeah yeah definitely now uh for shout outs uh i'm gonna i'm gonna dive a little bit deeper into something that i uh, a care an actor that i i held off on talking about otherwise in this episode uh and that's matthew lillard who uh is just he's so good in this movie and from this oral history, they talk about one of my favorite lines, which, Tay, I'm going to ask you to put in, but you're also going to have to censor it a little bit. Uh, so it's Lillard. He says, there's a moment where Skeet hits me with the phone and I scream. Hit me with the phone, Dick! 
And to me, that's a moment that was born out of the situation. I think that speaks to Wes and to Kevin in that you would always get a take that was as written, and then Wes would continually look for new and different takes. And I think Wes understood that Lillard was an asset in this. Apparently, um, you know, he got his audition, and they gave it to him in the room, which had never happened to Lillard before. Wow. And I just... It's an absolutely uh, unhinged performance. I think there's a little bit of, like, Nicolas Cage in what Lillard's doing in this movie. Yeah, Um, totally. I can see that. Not out of control, but, like, there's just something a little bit unpredictable. And, you know, because, like, with Billy, as you say, like, there's so many reasons to think he is the killer. Then he gets his alibi. But you're still like, come on, Skeet. Like, you're so creepy. (laughs) You're so intense. He is. Uh, whereas like Lillard, you're like, yeah, that's just like the dumb friend. And then when he's in it and like when they start stabbing each other and then when he hits him with the phone and like he really start, he's like drooling and bleeding and sweating. He's in that big baggy sweater. I love it so much. His third act performance is, is one of my favorite things in, in, in the horror genre. And is honestly good in everything. So if you just want to see mm-hmm. more Matthew Lillard, any of his movies that I've ever seen are really good. Uh, yeah, I mean the one the one Beats? that I've got Oof. on my list for the one that I've got on my list for this October is uh, Thirteen Ghosts. Yeah, yeah, I gotta watch that one again. It's been a long time. Yeah, I haven't. That's seen a it fun yet, one. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's Lillard. Uh, Tay, what do you got for a shout out? Uh, so mine is just uh, one of the kill scenes. I really like the thirty second delay uh, in the new yeah. from the news van. I think mm-hmm. it's one of Kenny. Yeah, and Kenny gets the gets iced because of his malpractice in the in the media <laughs> world because they set up a camera inside uh, that to spy on the teenagers at the party but the technological dilemma of the of 1995 or 96 mm-hmm. is that there's a 30 second delay on the camera so um, they're watching ghostface inside and then he quickly is like he realizes there's that look on his face he's like 30 second delay and then he like turns around and obviously Ghostface is right there and kills and he him. He gets got. Um, so, yeah, that's a good sequence. So the, I don't know, I like how that device is set up because once again, this is the long game. Like you have mm-hmm. uh, Gail Weathers going into the party but probably about like 25 minutes before this scene of action um, to set up the camera and then it's discovered that there's a delay and then it's they come back to it and follow it up with Yes, the delay kills Kenny, the cameraman. Um, and then just to add on to my for my shout out, um, I really like how when Gail Weathers comes back to the car, she doesn't know where his body is, and the windshield's just covered in blood, and you yeah. get that great shot of the windshield wipers going with the like wipe away the blood. Yeah. Um, everything with that moment that's like my favorite part of the movie. So that's my shout out. I think it's a great moment. Fantastic. Gail Weathers' name, for what it's worth, she even comments that it's Always like a weather good. a weather a weather person's name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah. that's funny too. No, yeah, that's a that's a good one. I I like uh, yeah. Kenny's got a good death among many good deaths in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So next week we'll be back again. We're doing four episodes this month, uh, as you may remember from our Swiss Army Man episode. So we're opening it up with Craven's scream. Uh, we did a vote already, and you guys will know which Craven that we're doing in two weeks. But in the off weeks, Tay and I are each picking a favorite horror movie that we're going to talk about. So we're going to do mine next week, uh, as I think we need a little bit of rise and fall between our styles and basically our our movie lengths and the level of um, maybe to be uh, uh, generous to me and nothing against filmmaker, but the level of pretension at play here. Um, We're going to talk about 2018's Suspiria remake uh, by Luca Guadagnino. 
Um, I love this movie to death. It's so it's so it's so it's so weird um, and it's, it's got such a, a particular style and it's it's horrifying and it's touching and it's such an odd thing to have even happened uh, and I can't wait to talk about it and then we should let them know I think just so people can can get all their movie watching homework in Tay what are we doing for your pick which is our fourth week it's going to close out horror month for us what yeah. are we doing so for mine we are going to do the the 1974 classic Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which is one of my favorite horror films of all time. And I have one of, it's one of my favorite scenes of all time we're going to talk about. So I can't wait for that one either. But also like Suspiria, Tim, great pick. Sorry to anyone who has to sit through the long run time, but it's honestly mm-hmm. worth it. It's a, it's a great film as yeah. well. So I can't wait to talk about that one either. Yeah, and I feel like it's a nice balance because I, I would not be surprised if a lot of people overlooked Suspiria if you didn't like the first one, which, frankly, I don't, I'm don't. i not a huge fan of the, of the Dario Argento one. I understand why it's remembered and its legacy, but it's got if moments. you overlook this one because it was an Amazon release because it had almost no theatrical play, I got lucky when I saw it, um, or you saw the style or, or the tone and you overlooked it, like, there's some very cool, very horrifying things happening in this movie. It's a great modern uh example i think of uh what modern horror truly modern horror has to offer so that'll be next week check out texas chainsaw massacre before we do that in three weeks and uh you guys know what won the vote we don't because uh we haven't done it yet we're still we're still recording this in september but uh we'll find out then we'll have our full schedule uh posted on the instagram as for recommendations i'm going with another sort of uh meta Horror movie, it's it's another one of my favorites. I, I find this movie to be so watchable, super funny. Uh, t- funny to the extent that it's not particularly scary, but that's okay. They don't all have to be. Uh, and it's Cabin in the Woods uh, from 2011, directed by Drew Goddard. Um, I love this movie. I There was a, there was a, um, a year or two where I probably watched this movie like every month because it was just, you just throw it on. You watch the characters do their thing. You know, you know that you know what's gonna happen. Uh, it, it's lots of fun. I'm a big fan. Good balance of horror and comedy too, like genuine horror, genuine yeah. comedy, mm-hmm. similar to Scream, in that and regard. very and very meta, like Scream, but in a different way. But it's also about horror. Movies, yeah, not kind of not like Scream, like Scream in many ways, like at all tonally. Yeah. But as far mm-hmm. as its balance of actual funny humor and actual scary horror, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So I went for another meta movie. Tay, I think you're going for another Craven movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to, uh, We did debate having it in our audience vote for the Craven vote, but we felt mm-hmm. like we were going to kind of tread over what we already talked about today with Scream. So instead of putting it on the vote, I'm going to use it as my recommendation for this week, which is Wes Craven's New Nightmare from 1994, directed by Wes Craven. Uh, the title is literally Wes Craven's New Nightmare yeah <laughs> so that's not just like the title with the director's name in front of it um that if you want to see a true meta movie this is about yeah. as meta as it gets this is a movie that takes place in the real world where nightmare on elm street was a movie and the cast from the original movie or at least some of the cast members from the original movie are themselves in real life but are getting stalked by the real freddy krueger uh, mm-hmm. who is a little bit different than his portrayal in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies as well, which yeah, this totally works. This movie is so much fun. I watched this at your recommendation, I want to say just last year, maybe the year before. It's definitely 
definitely during the pandemic. And it's something where I don't think I would have thought to watch it. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, it's the seventh installment in the Freddy Krueger franchise. Don't even, let's um, not even tease it that way, though, because it's so different yeah. and so well, that's the thing, And it's so different. And, and I think, you know, they call it, as you mentioned, they say it's literally Wes Craven's new nightmare. So I don't think they're too intent on being like, it's Friday the 13th, the 7th, you know. But it is just kind of it's it's a movie I honestly I I don't think I had heard of before right. before you told me to watch it. So great recommendation. I highly recommend it. You'll have lots of fun. Yeah, if you like Scream, this is the next best thing you're gonna get. If not, it, like, and I know some people like it better. I kind of think they're on par. Yeah. They're great, both great in films. So. Yeah. Even though it was two movies before for Craven, um, which is it, it it that was interesting to me. It felt like oh he's doing more of the Scream thing, but not the case. But uh, yeah, those are our recommendations. But uh, check the show notes to see where you can watch it. Same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, whatever whatever you guys voted for. And otherwise, you can follow us there at SSC Pod on Instagram. You can email us at singleservingcinema at gmail.com if you have questions or thoughts. Or if you want to tell us your favorite horror movie, like we, we are prepared to do a mailbag episode when the mailbag is full. So uh, yep. hit us up there. And otherwise, um, you know, get on Shudder, you know, start searching horror movies on whatever streaming services you have. And uh, really make the most of this month. Tay, you normally have like a big, a big list of horror movies for the month. Have you have you built that out yet? No, but I did decide on my Halloween movie list already. All right. Do you want what's what what's what, what's in like the prime time slot? Can you tell us like what's around seven o'clock? Okay, so it's probably going to be a pick. Honestly, probably on the day, but it's going to mm-hmm. be uh, because we're doing a Devil's Night screening and not a Halloween day screening. So we're going to either do Jeepers Creepers or Hell House LLC for the 7.30 primetime slot. The, the second, the, the latter of which is another one I watched on your recommendation. Man, that movie's so much fun. Yeah, yeah either, one, either one of those could be fine. It's been a while since I've seen Jeepers Creepers, but all right. Yeah. Well, there's a long tale to this episode. Watch some horror, everyone. Uh, and, uh, you know, the more you know about horror, the better you, you may survive an encounter with Ghostface, but that's, uh, that's not a given. So, uh, you know, keep your head on a swivel. 